Dane's dream. Can you imagine if it just turns up somewhere and is just handed back to the Imperial family in Japan? Like, uh, I would love that. You, you, uh, you dropped this, (laughs) right? And you know, you know, much like with winning the lottery, it's going to be some like English school teacher (laughs) whose great grandfather fought in the war. She's really mild mannered. Like it just, Oh, a super nice, wholesome lady. Like, We've been using this as a letter well, you know, opener for years. Oh, yeah. You know, we found the uh, that their katana in our attic and uh, we just thought, oh, you know, turn it into the history people. They know what to do with it. Don't you know? We used to use it for like just some parameters, don't you know? It'll be like we were that. chopping wood with it, but it's OK. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just going to cry. I'm just going to or, or even better, Open it ends way. up on like Antiques Roadshow or something. Oh, God. Everybody's or like, oh, hold Pawn on. Stars. Hold or on. Or Pawn Stars. Oh. oh, man. Don't. No, don't. Don't. It's going to be a Pawn Stars. Oh. Look, look, you got to understand. All right. I understand this is a Masamune. I'm going to call my guy in here. He's going to take a look at it. Look, I understand that we've authenticated this to be an authentic Masamune, but you got to real. You got to understand I gotta make him. You know, I gotta resell this thing. Uh, best I could do is three fifty. That's three dollars and fifty cents, mind you, not three hundred and fifty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Best I could do. You know what? You know what? I could do five. Just as a reminder, this is a spoiler-heavy podcast. The notes for what series will be popping up are in the description. Also, sorry in advance if we are mispronouncing our Japanese. So welcome to another episode of Gaming Theater Podcast. Today's episode, episode 2, The Masamune. Now... The Monsabuti is an interesting sword, and we have a couple of guests uh, from our, uh, who's done some work with us at Gaming Theater Presents. And how about you guys introduce yourselves? Once again, I am Leo, Geek Scorpio. I'll go ahead and take charge on this next one here then, gentlemen. Uh, my name is Steven. I'm also known as Nibble Snarf. Uh, happy to be here. I'll go next. My name is Nathan, also known as Arm the Red. I've done the voice of Slash in the past. My name is Dane. I go by D and Dane on the internet, and I'm looking forward to this. I don't know if you gentlemen realize, but I actually have a degree in Japanese history. Uh, so this is partially up my alley. Nice. Partway through the alley. Sweet. <laughs> I've, I've taken a class in that category, but I can't say the same. Like <laughs> All right. Well, before we get started, uh, uh, let's take a quick stop at the Magical Merch Booth. All right, here we are at the Magical Merch Booth, and it's all its glory. It's really only managed by one bard, and so it's just don't talk to the bard too much. He only knows two songs, the theme to this to this show and uh, Wonderwall. But anyway, uh, looks like he's got a couple of snacks and ooh, a pamphlet uh, for uh, one of our for yourself, Dave. Why don't you tell people about it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I said before, I am uh, Dean Dane on the internet, twitch.tv slash Dean Dane. Uh, I am a charity streamer and all-around big nerd. Um, I do a number of different charity drives, one of them being for Extra Life, which I know we will learn about more in subsequent podcasts. So if uh, you like Extra Life or you like that sort of gaming charity, uh, come back and listen to us. We have a another episode planned, I think, kind of based around that. But um, if I'm not mistaken, Leo. No, that should be released yeah, somewhere. November. November. Come back in and listen in November. Yeah, uh, additionally, uh, of Dice and Dens, they're a D&D podcast. Uh, you can find pretty much everywhere that we will be uh, in terms of podcasting. They do a uh, benefit drive for Simply Cats, which is a nonprofit uh, no-kill cat shelter. And uh, that should be coming up TBD. We don't have exact dates, uh, but it should be in the summer sometime. So if you like helping out kitties, uh, definitely give of De- dice and dens a D podcast a listen uh, sometimes it's shortened to o d n d um they're pretty great folks and yeah if you'd like come check me out on twitch.tv slash dnn all right great all right i'm just gonna keep this pamphlet aside and it looks like uh oop, the lines are moving come on guys let's uh take back to the show So with this, um, we did, uh, for Gaming Theater Presents, we did an episode on the Masamune Sword. And so this was actually our first uh, Legendary Artifact with an Artifact episode. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, I'll put the link into the description for that. If you don't, uh, don't watch it, you just want to do the podcast side, that's fine. You don't need to watch it. We'll get you through this whole thing. So the big thing on this is that one of the uh, things when we found in the research is that the Masamune sword technically is both a the Masamune sword and not as we as some of the research has proven. Um, Masamune just titles his own swords after himself, so he just makes the sword and he makes and he's just and now it's officially a Masamune sword. Kind of like how basically you can say like gunmakers like Winchester, they're Winchesters because they're made from that factory, but also like. Hondas for cars and what what have you. Yeah, that's the manufacturer. Pretty common mm-hmm. to be done there. Yeah. So the thing is, is that, and as we've learned in video games and other storytelling, especially in manga, this keeps going over and over and over again, like this glorious sword that people have to search or rebuild to get that to find the Masamune sword or to get it forged by the greatest craftsman or the or or artisan. Or the greatest sword maker that, uh, of their time, and that's sort of reflected on. Before we get to, uh, started to the forging process, that's sort of reflected on the man itself, right? It is widely believed that yes, the maker of the swords are the spirit and the essence of the swords, and this isn't just in Japanese history too. This is actually in uh, history, just in general, because the. Uh, obviously, when it comes down to it, it all obviously comes down to the man who's building the, the man, man or woman or what have you who is building the sword, the, the 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 thing that is very well being used in combat between your between your claymores, your katanas, your your bastard swords, uh, short swords, whatever have you. Though each one has a specific design to it, and that's generally um, generally improved upon by the uh, the craftsmen. Uh, because, I mean, that is their design, that is their heart, their spirit, their soul. That is the thing that is literally being poured into this, not just because, A, it's 
the widely believed theory was that these swords, like swords, were never meant to be used for weapons of war, but for weapons of defense. Obviously, as mankind's history has proven, that is never the case. War always involves these things because that is a way to kill. It's always been that way from the start when it used to be rocks and st uh, stones to where we are now. Um, Dane, Nathan, feel free to chime in on any of this too if you want to as well. Yeah, kind of going back to something you mentioned uh, that I've always found really interesting is that these are craftspeople who typically have learned under other craftspeople, right? So you have a long line of people passing down their tutelage and their teachings to the next generation. And then that generation either uh, expands upon it or maybe goes in a different direction than their their teachers. Um, I know that um, for Masamune, the, the historical person, um, it was rumored that he probably studied under uh, a stylistic appearance of either the old Bizen or the Hoki province styles. Uh, so he, he's, he probably had a master or masters from those areas. Um, and that's typically uh, kind of shown in his work. And then we know that, or I guess I shouldn't say that we know, but uh, we, we believe that he had a great number of swordsmiths underneath him. The number kind of varies here and there, 10, I've heard 15, uh, but they're kind of known as like the disciples or great disciples of Masamune. So I think it's really fascinating to see, um, while I don't know if Masamune was quote unquote the best sword maker in all of Japanese history or even in all of, of sword making history, I would certainly put forth that he's definitely one of the most well-known from Japan. And it's neat to see that his his students carried that forward even after him. He's also known for because of his quality of his work. Mm -hmm. And before about eighteen fifty, I said say of eighteen fifties, when the science of reusable parts actually comes into play, um, that's a really important thing. Your sword maker literally is the only guy who's making that sword. Old school blacksmiths, especially in England and um, Germany and and various parts of Europe were reg uh, regaled, but they're also necessary. I mean, in those areas, it's hard not to go into a town and not find a blacksmith, but the best blacksmiths usually could do more with what they would work with. Um, so bigger cities with better, bigger and better blacksmiths would be the, also be the ones who make uh, locks for safes or, or jail cells or other metallic objects that needed more tinkering for it. I think it's a really um, good point, uh, Leo. You can keep in mind, right, this is 1200, give take, to 1300 uh, CE. So, like, this, this is, I mean, way back in the day, right? They're not using uh, modern forges. They're not using modern practices. They're, I mean, not to say that their setup was rudimentary, but by today's standards, it absolutely was. Uh, but for the time, I mean, groundbreaking. The fact that they Very get quality so. steel out of basically pig iron is exceptional. All right, right. So that kind 13th, of... 14th century there. And yeah, even with uh, everything said before, not only are they regaled highly and respected as craftsmen, but that was yep. their livelihood too. So mm -hmm. as much as their craftsmanship went into it, it was keeping food on their tables at the same time. Absolutely. And then you kind of need somebody who's, or I guess if you were a Lord, you would want somebody who's known for making good work, right? Cause if you go out to war with uh, your, your neighbors or whomever, uh, and you've got a piece of crap sword that breaks on you. I mean, not to say that a good sword couldn't break on you, but uh, I think that, if somebody is well known for making good quality works, you want them on kind of your side, right? You want to you know, want to snatch that up um, so that you're getting better quality armaments than maybe your your enemies are. 
Very much so. Yeah. Um, uh, this does bring us to the next point. So during, um, unless you have something to say real quick. Oh, no, go ahead, please. All right. So during his time, um, there did a, uh, it would be perfectly fine for an artisan to sort of craft his weaponry and craft his tools to be works of art. And that's how Masamuti saw it. He saw his swords not as weapons of destruction, but as a work of art. Now, that would be fine as long as war weren't declared. However, war were declared. Um, the big bad, uh, giant war during his uh, time frame was the invasion of the Mongol army into uh, the territories of Japan. And when you're doing um, something like that, it you kind of have to work with what you got. The, there, this is sort of where the issue of steel becomes an issue. Um, we in the West, we understand steel sort of from things like RPGs and and um, stories and books and TV shows and movies as a person goes into a mine, picks up steel, uh, picks up iron, comes back, and they turn, forge it into a sword, right? Or a knife. Um, when you're talking about those mass numbers, that becomes a problem. So swords have the unique ability of being a lot of versatility, but they require a lot of training. This is also how in the future uh, from why swords get why bows and arrows get phased out for guns because it takes less time to teach someone to use a gun than it does to get them to use a bow properly now for japan a lot of their weaponry and skill is in uh, melee combat melee combat so rather than have everyone work on so uh, he would love to have everyone have a sword but they would go with spears and this has to deal with masamune and how iron it works see in europe iron can be found in swamps um, and in different areas. And it's fairly, the natural iron in the European areas is fairly decent quality. Um, in Japan, though, um, the iron quality that's there isn't nearly as good, so you spend more time refining it. And what people forget is steel used to be a piece of jewelry because it was so hard to make at the time. Right, you've got a chunk of crude iron that's full of impurities, and you're trying to turn it into something that, someone would be proud to wear or show off their wealth. I was going to say, because kind of chiming in on that one too, you're talking about like how the refining process of it was steel. You're absolutely right. Because uh, like back in the day, I mean, the, the modern days of technology, people don't understand that everything in today's day and age is so much easier to do in comparison to what was had to be done back in the day. So for swords back in the day too, you couldn't just, you know, um, build a sword out of entirely out of steel uh because the thing about it was is that you could bring the steel to a very high temperature to get rid of the impurities but you also have to keep in mind that when you're bringing it to this said high temperature you're also running the risk of causing the steel to brittle so when you're talking about that sort of thing you're also going to have to fa factor in like it's not just steel that you're working with. You're also working in with other soft and hard metals that you have to add on as layers to help keeping just that piece of steel from breaking. So, yeah, I mean, it's like when you bring that up, it is actually very interesting because that's a pretty good segue for that little tidbit of knowledge to come into play where, yeah, making a sword took a lot more than just like hammering and heating. It also required you to having to fold and, and add additional layers onto it to make it to where it wouldn't break. So, uh, in order for steel to be purified, they have to do go through a rigorous process. And this keeps happening until roughly about um, pretty uh, 
just maybe around the late 1800s, early 1900s, a process of steel making called the Bessemer process gets it gets created. And what the Bessemer process does is it injects um, blasts of hot air to um, to purify the iron that's in there. And it's such a fast process that it you and the way it kind of works is interesting because it will use the heat from the forge to purify the metal that's already in the in the forge. Um, back th uh, so when you use that process, it speeds up your process to get really high quality steel and really uh, with uh, making it a cheaper process to process. And the reason why that's important is because that's how in the twenties we had things like skyscrapers and other uh, automobiles and other larger effects because you need that kind of steel to work with once you get to the certain engineering level. Um, the ratio is what is it? It's for every 1,000 uh, tons of steel to make, it is 20,000 tons of iron that has to be processed back then. Kind of like making maple syrup. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I would say that that's a good point to be made because you'd end up the same thing with the sword makers is that they would get tons and tons of crude iron, but not as many weapons would necessarily get turned out in quantities. Uh, in higher quantities. However, the sorts you would get from typical smiths, including most of many, although fewer in number, were higher in quality. And given the process that had been uh, coming around into more common knowledge, that Mosamuni himself, I think, had some sort of intricate know how or intuition about perhaps on some unnatural talent you could say that he seemed to understand the molecular composition of the metals he was working with more innately rather than actually under have a, a direct understanding of it and seemed to have a particular talent with manipulating it and in and to that end being able to make use of the impurities that would still be in the metals to make sure that the resulting blade was not only uh, appropriately brittle, but also pliable so that it wouldn't necessarily shatter and, and snap. But yeah, to Dave's point, this is an apprenticeship. And so they have to learn from who, who they had before and make certain changes as they go. Um, and if they do it just right, you have someone who can just make or something that's just regarded as the best. And Masamune is the guy for that. Um, now, this is where things get kind of muddy. Masamune may be the, the guy with the best sword, but nobody, but very few. It was a piece of pride and honor to have a Masamune blade in your, uh, in your, um, equipment. And, but it takes so long for him to personally make these that most people had knives or basically a type of, uh, Tonto, like a sh uh, short sword for that. Um, and then there was a point where some people, because of how exclusive it was to have a Masamune sword, they would find a way to break the sword in half, and now they have two knives from Masamune. That's just cheating. <laughs> two. Also a shame. I'm sure that Masamune was not <laughs> pleased about that. And given the status symbol that it was, they'd already put him on a pedestal to be revered uh, even during his time during late 13th century. So if you're already taking something that's considered far and wide, largely priceless at that point, 
and you're snapping one, well, you've essentially committed a sin. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so fun fact, with the Masabuti swords, um, unlike his uh, quote-unquote rival, Muramasa, uh, Masamuni's swords are, by default, a national treasure. Just having one is already a national treasure. That's how good his... Yes, they were yeah. considered holy, sacred items. And uh, that's how... Now, that's a level that I uh, that any like weapon maker would want to be. Or any forger, really, who would want to be. Yeah, I just made this little uh, dink's knife. Well, praise be, this is a national treasure, Rita. <laughs> It is now officially priceless just because you touched it. That's funny, too, I think, because I, I don't know if at the time, right, in his day, if that was necessarily the case. But the legend and the story of, of Masamune has grown so much that instantly, if you find a Masamune, you're, you know, it, it is priceless. It's literally priceless. It's a national treasure. Um, and it's really I, I, that kind of shift, I think, is probably interesting because I don't know. As a lot of us know, there's a common saying where the art gets more expensive after the artist dies, right? Uh, most art is is only worth something when the person making it cannot create more of it. So I, I do wonder, I don't know, but it would be interesting to see if that was the case here, right? If you know, they're like, oh yeah, Masamuni does great work, super good stuff, love the guy, super cool. And then he dies like, oh no, this is the best, national treasure, let's go. Just you immediate know? upgrade due to limited edition. Yeah. Yeah, right? Oh, I got the last one he ever made. What's up? Um, Another thing that I think is kind of interesting, just to keep in mind historically, is that this is taking place during the Kamakura period. So this is kind of before the rise of, uh, or kind of before slash during the rise of samurai. This is kind of when the samurai emerged, the warrior caste established, and feudalism is really kind of started here in Japan during this time period. So... Masamune, depending on, uh, you know, when he was actually born and when he actually died, you know, he very well could have seen the rise of samurai. And what's interesting about the samurai, I think a lot of people in the West have kind of a misconception, is that when we think of samurai, we think katana, we think wakazashi, we think tanto, the three, the daisho that they wear on their belt, right? And that is accurate, but it's more accurate later in the historical timeline. At the emergence, and actually for the majority of the time of the samurai, they did carry swords, they did carry katana, it was something that was prized by them, but in actuality, they used a wide variety of weapons, and actually, from what I've read, they have, they used the bow primarily over the sword. Yes. In most cases, until the later samurai era where, you know, warfare was not as much of a big deal, and it was more about the warrior poets who, uh, you know, do haiku in the day and train with their swords in in a building at, at night or what have you. Um, so I think it's interesting that like, by all accounts, right, Masamune may have seen the rise of the samurai, or he may have come into his, his, uh, tenancy at the, you know, as the samurai were emerging, but even then, you know, swords were, were considered important, but they weren't the go-to default weapon of war at that time. As, as you mentioned, Leo, uh, spears were, were very big for like your peasant infantry, uh, you know, bows were used a lot by samurai and other people. So I find it interesting that like this person is well known for making swords and the sword is kind of, there, there's a, a equivalence that a lot of people put that, Oh, the sword of the samurai is their soul. Right. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it, it's a romantic thing that we, we do hear about. 
Um, so I think it's fascinating that this person is known for making swords. Yeah. He is prized for his swords, and his swords are now national treasures. But at the time when maybe he was starting out, or maybe when he was kind of coming into his own as a blacksmith, like the sword may not have been as big a deal as we make it out to be now. Right. That's my understanding as well, is that back in those days in the Kamakura period, the bow was the primary weapon, and you only relied on the store if the bow failed, or if you lost yeah. your your uh, your mount, uh, etc. That was the fallback. So it's more interesting that why are we talking more about uh, important bowyers and fletchers back yeah. in the day instead of this uh, swordsmith that you'd think would be a yeah. secondary consideration? Uh, the, and, where where yeah. are the famous bowyers at? Are those in, are those in museums somewhere? Perhaps. Why not? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, for one, am tired of this bowyer erasure that we are seeing Right. There's all this out of there's all this extra culture around uh, Kudo or the uh, the archery practice and so mm-hmm. forth and all that. But that seems to be sort of now a sideline past the Kamakura period. <laughs> and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. well, and if you think about it too, and if you look at it, um, oh, sorry, Nathan, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Uh, go ahead and finish up what you're what you're thinking. Sure. Uh, the other primary thing is that the katana wasn't the primary weapon that you'd be relying on at that period. It'd be mm-hmm. Tachi which is the more common long sword. Maybe even an Odachi, yes. which if you look a picture of those, those are <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> well, and those were, those type of swords were based off of the, uh, um, like when you talk about the Odachi, the Odachi is actually based off another design, uh, which was a European like sword, which was purely designed for one thing and one thing only bringing down horses uh, because that type of a sword and the Odachi was no, was no different in that terms. Uh, the whole premise behind that was, of course, you, you got a guy who's mounted because mounted combat was still very much a thing back in that day. Um, and, you know, mounted bows, mounted uh, long range battles. Um, a lot, if you ever actually look at it, like depending on what history war has happened for mankind, um, you'll always see that up until we war became modernized where guns were the more big thing and whatnot, but it's still a long range killing device. It's always been like what you said, Nathan, what you said, Dane, what you said, Leo, is that it's been bows. It's been spears. It's been horse combat. It has always been that way. Swords were nothing more than just a short range thing and last, last uh, ditch effort to stay alive. That's and that probably sort of thing. Oh, and sorry, katanas. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, katanas are really are no different in this in that aspect of it. But yeah, if like if you ever look at the history of mankind when it came to war, that has always been the thing. Bows were not just used for hunting, while that was their primary uh, their primary purpose. They were once again like all things that mankind does adapted into something that was for combat. Sorry, that's all right. Thank you. Uh, so what I was going to say is that I, I think that the common thread with the switched in primary weapons is probably due to what we were discussing earlier was the development of better processes for refining iron into steel. Uh, the previous weapons from an earlier era were probably more unreliable, uh, which is why you didn't want to fall back on them in the first place. Cause you didn't know if it was going to snap on you at a crucial time when it could be life or death for you at, at that moment. So given the changes that happened around uh, somewhat close to Masamune's time and how he ended up actually changing the initial designs of common weapons and forming more of what the shape and design of the common katana that came into greater parlance going forward 
then they became a lot more commonplace as they were a lot more reliable uh, to use as a weapon for defense. So this will bring me to an interesting note that, because I just thought about it. Um, so Masamune is famous for doing swords. Then you have sort of romanticized through the West uh, katanas. Katanas won't come big into play until uh, Masamune's uh, rival, uh, Muramasu, I think is Muramasa. that how you pronounce it? Masa. Muramasa. Yeah. So Muramasa, his uh, the, the rival sword maker, because Muramasa's big thing is making a is making katanas. You would that's the big weapon that you would use at that time. Now, because of anybody who understands sort of of how you make weaponry and defense, um, your three biggest issues are going to be supply, skill, and um. You know, the access to the supply, the skill required to use it, and the reliability of those weaponry. Um, you'll see that constantly. So, like, one of the bigger names in Japan, Japanese history is uh, the sword, uh, the Ronin uh, Musashi. Musashi is famously, even though he comes way after both of these guys, so he's before, he's after Masamune and after Katana's other thing, um, Musashi's main weapon of choice is Boken a wooden sword again because steel is so difficult to make that it was more effective for him to just use two wooden uh, swords than it was to use a metal weapon and his skill level is so well that it worked well, and just to kind of clarify just to make sure i'm doing my due diligence like miyamoto musashi yeah. very much so had swords he had, he had live steel blades oh yeah um we, we have historical precedent I mean, as far as we know, stating that he did, um, though he, he was known for using different tactics and sort of, uh, interesting styles that did not always use a, uh, a metal weapon. So as you may have, uh, as you kind of tuned into Leo, uh, one of his most famous fights, he, he cut a, an oar into a katana and showed up on an Island with this wooden sword made out of a boat oar. Uh, and allegedly uh, defeated his opponent with that as well. Oh yeah, where he cut the guy, uh, which is cool because they like give you a scene from that, like in almost every samurai anime or every uh, mm -hmm. any samurai movie with it. That two guys running up jumps in the air, one cuts the other, someone just bleeds from the side, the other one go falls dead. I mean, as a quick aside, kind of going along with that, can you imagine how insulting it must be? You're you're the you're the samurai. You've agreed to a duel. Uh, it's going to be you know on this area that this upstart samurai has challenged you to. He shows up late, doesn't show up on time, and when he gets there, he doesn't draw his sword. He draws a wooden sword that he's carved on the ride over. Like he's not taking it seriously. Uh, Musashi is a whole another thing that we could totally get into at another time. I know, but I, I will later. Uh, but but yeah. I, I just his his practices and his his unwillingness to fight on the same level that everyone else was had kind of agreed was accepted. Right? He didn't he didn't hold himself to rules. He didn't hold himself to uh, the same standards that a lot of other samurai did. He thought they were stuffy and and ridiculous. Uh, and so that I just I cannot even imagine like. It's like showing up to, to pistols at dawn, right? And the other guy's got a pop gun, you know? He's, he's shooting corks at you, but he wins. Yeah. <laughs> and he still wins. Like, that's the best part. He still wins. So it's like, 
at that point, do you really chide the guy who just kicked your ass? To, I'm sorry, your butt. I mean, he ki- he he killed you, so no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's what I'm getting though. It's like, and I apologize for swearing there. I know this is meant to be PG. Apologize. No, that's fine. You okay. can just go. Okay, <laughs> cool. But if that, but, I mean, that's... and thus the threshold <laughs> was open. Oh, uh, you you've opened the floodway for the sailor. Anyways, um. <laughs> in any case though but like so i mean because we want to get back on topic here yeah, though too right, it's right. just one of those things it's like you know when we talk about that it's it's always a model that i've always lived by and it's it's not that i like i live by this like die heartedly or anything like that but it's like well, a good friend of yours and mine has once always said leo if you're not cheating you're not trying and bringing a wooden sword that still kills you feels like it's a cheat like, I'm sorry. He killed you with a wooden sword. It doesn't feel like a cheat. It feels like a downgrade. <laughs> uh, well, we'll definitely, I know we'll get into this again, but like, I yeah. can't stress enough. I love the fact that, I mean, he was so tuned into that mental game, right? Oh, like, yeah. Like, he, he had swords. He had metal swords. Uh, and he knew the tactics that his enemies were using. And he chose not to use those tactics because, like, you know, showing up late for a battle, never done. Uh, showing mm-hmm. up and, and not drawing your, your main blade, not drawing a, a sword, but drawing a wooden uh, boken instead not done really like it was all insulting it was all designed to like throw his opponents off a step and, and it's it, never fair it's fascinating oh yeah and and he was just also that and um he's got the skill to back that up and after he wins that fight well who's to tell him no if the other guy right <laughs> i went down there's there is uh, i did hear mention at some point that i was reading that the, some of that story may have been largely ap- apocryphal, oh, oh. <laughs> but I think it may have been largely a commentary against tradition mm-hmm. and giving rise to changes or accepting new ways, which might have been the intention uh, prior to him ever writing Book of Five Rings and all that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's a uh, it's definitely apocryphal. Um, uh, Steve, you do you know the story of Masamune and Muramasa? Uh. It depends on which version of the story we're talking about. <laughs> There's a lot of legends about those two, but if you're talking about the one where they both challenged each other to a duel, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and put the disclaimer out there. The story is purely that. It's nothing more than a story. It's nothing more than a legend. Nothing more than a myth. Uh, because uh, apocryphal. Again, apocryphal. Because if you also look at the time that both of them were alive, there was a 200-year gap between the two. So, you know, mm-hmm. Muramasa, no way in hell could have challenged uh, fucking uh, uh, Masamune to a duel because of the fact that, you know, it's like Masamune was dead, like way dead at this point. But yeah, yeah, got a time but, machine. but get back. Yeah. And this wouldn't be a fight. This, a this is a sword. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is very but different. They, but the, what makes this duel so interesting, and it's like when I was doing some research on this, because I was actually very curious to know more about the duel itself was that, what the duel initially was, was that Muramasa was so pissed off about Mazamune because all his blades kept getting compared to Mazamune. And that this eventually led Muramasa to finally challenge Mazamune to a duel, but not one that would take your life. Because back in the day, a duel back then was that. It's a duel to the death, all times, all, all day, every day. In this situation, it was a duel to who was the finer swordsmith. Um so obviously they both men had agreed upon the duel. They had taken the time to make their swords. Mazumune made his, Muramasa made his. And then to test the strength of the sword and see which was better, they both would dip the tips of the sword into a river. Uh, for Mazumune's sword, and depending on which legend you read in this, like I've read different legends of this, so it's always been something different that got cut. Um, 
one of the legends was is that when Mazamune sword was dipped into the river, uh, it would cut tree uh, tree uh, tree twigs, branches. It would cut leaves, um, but it would not cut anything else. Where Muramasa's sword was dipped in, anything that touched was cut instantly. Uh, as a result, Muramasa believed that because of this, his sword was deemed the better sword. And this is just one of the legends where a monk then had came by, saw the duel, and actually de- actually decried Muramasa's claim for victory by saying, no, if you look at Mazumune's blade, his blade only cut the uh, the leaves as well as the, the tree branches, but it did not cut the fish. It did not cut anything that was alive. Thus meaning that Mazumune's sword was more spiritual based uh, and it knew how to protect life instead of taking life, where Muramasa's sword, and that's also kind of an interesting segue from Muramasa, which I know we'll bring up in a later episode at some point, um, but Muramasa's sword was based off the spirit of Muramasa, the demon's blade. And his blade would cut anything because it was chaotic, like the creator. So as a result, because of that, this is why the legend is so wildly true. And it's fascinating because if you go and look at any form of the legend itself, you'll find easily on the interwebs at least like five to seven different legends. But this is the one I always like. This was the one thing that I always found consistent between each one was that they were put in this water. They would cut something specific and one would not cut anything that was actually alive. And that was Mazimune's blade. And because of the fact that, you know, Mazumune's blade was designed to protect life instead of hurt life, it was then dubbed the greatest sword ever per that legend. So, and again, like I said, this is all, of course, you know, just like legend story and whatnot. There's no way that this could have really happened, but it is a fascinating read. So, yeah, that's, I just did kind of want to chime that little bit in there. I appreciate you giving me that chance to do that. Uh, Nathan, Dane, you guys got anything you want to weigh in on that? I do have to say, it must be unfortunate to be muramasa uh like so 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 anytime you've got two people who are excellent at what they do right there's obviously going to be a comparison we see it all the time here where it's like oh no one's the great like michael jordan was the great you know like Mm -hmm. kobe Shaq, whatever michael jordan all the way he got the three feet you know all of his accomplishments uh you know so it doesn't really matter like for us old old folk who grew up with uh you know the people before anyone who comes after is going to be automatically seen in doubt as oh well yeah you know muramasa's good but he's no masamune i mean come on right um and that's got to suck right like and because of this because of this like folk legend and i don't know if it, it came about after his time you know maybe hopefully he was dead I, that's what i would prefer if it were me but how shitty it must it be to be like Hey, you're good, Muramasa, but uh, I mean, you're never going to be a Masamune. I'm just throwing it out there, bro. Sorry. And then, like, to have the reputation of being like the bloodthirsty swordsmith whose blades drink the blood of the innocent and cuts everything and causes their user to go into a frenzied rage. Like, that sucks. This guy's over here just like, I just wanted to make swords. And it's like, no, you make evil swords or, you know, whatever. And obviously, I'm being a little bit ridiculous about it, but. Uh, I, I do find that that aspect kind of fascinating that like we know very little more or less about Muramasa. There, there is some some knowledge that we do have historically, but like in terms of what people think about when you hear the word Muramasa, you think of his bloodthirsty blades, not this guy who just probably wanted to make swords and do a good job at it. Yep. And that's why, that's why they got dubbed the demon's blade essentially, because it was mm-hmm. based off. And it's like what you guys brought up earlier and what I said too, you know, like the livelihood, Nathan made a great point about this. Like the livelihood of the craftsman is on the line when it comes to this. And for Muramasa, 
this was obviously his livelihood. He built swords, he built blades, he built anything like that. But then to be continuously compared to a man who has long since passed 200 years before you were born mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. I, I would imagine that's gotta, that's gotta be a right kick in the dick just to make one mad straight up. So, I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, Nathan, you got something you want to add into that? Yeah. And uh, just a little bit more to that is the, this apocryphal legend. It, it probably came around uh, the time that, Muramasa had been alive. I don't know the timing exactly historically of when this appeared, but it's like you're looking back at I, I've got it up in front of me, like the the supposed quote from the monk that had witnessed the whole thing. He's saying the first of the swords may, by all accounts, be a fine sword. However, it is a bloodthirsty, evil blade, yep. as it doesn't discriminate as who or what it will cut. It may just as well be cutting down butterflies as severing heads. Yep. That that second one was by far the finer of the two, as it doesn't needlessly cut that which is innocent and undeserving. And therefore, Masamune is dubbed a holy weapon, and a, therefore a holy smith. And Muramasa gets shit off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's and that's exactly it. That was part of the legend. Because it's like I said, there are many different versions of the legend. But these the, the, the three things that kept coming up were those three things I mentioned. The sword, the river, the monk. And how it got displayed in each one. Yeah, because that's what Nathan just said. It's exactly it. And that's exactly how I, I believe one of the legends was too. Was that it got to cry because it's a, it's a demonic blade. To sit there and just cut anything that it touches is very demonic in its own right. Where you have another blade, the Mazamune, which preserves life. I mean, it can still take life, but it preserves life. Yeah, and just to add insult to injury, the like some versions, like after the duel, like before removing the blades, they'd say things like, "Oh yeah," and after they uh, went past Mazamune's blade and sliced, they they uh, fused back together. Like the leaves would fuse back together, things like that. Yep. Yeah, absurd, absurd in its own finest right. But hey, you know that's what legends are great for. But just like let's One let's thing- love that salt in there just a little bit more. <laughs> right. One thing I do want to clarify, just for my own uh, edification, something I said wasn't a hundred percent correct. I, I did kind of downplay Muramasa's importance historically, and I just wanted to say, like, there is historical document that he did have a relationship with the Tokugawa shogunate, which is huge. Uh, which which is the shogunate really? Uh, they're the ones who ruled for you know 250 plus years uh, of relative peace uh, after Japan was unified. So I just wanted to make sure that I clarified that like Muramasa did stuff. He did some great, amazing things, and his swords are revered. But uh, they're no Masamune. I know. Okay, exactly. <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure I was doing my my due that. diligence. You know how it is. <laughs> Also, and here's the thing: if you were a, uh, a part of the shogunate, you would actually probably prefer Muramasa for the tactical advantage versus Masamune, because Masamune's big thing is making a sword, but he takes forever if he would make a sword on that. Whereas Muramasa, the shogunate and the Tokugawa shogunate at the time, is it Tokugawa that he works for? Yeah, yeah, it was Ieyasu yeah. specifically. Yeah, well, first Ieyasu, and then he had a yeah, couple. That'd be of during other, his time, uh, Tokugawa. Yeah. So here's why one of the reasons why katanas are so well known because Muramasa makes them specifically for the entirety of the shogunate and their clans and their families. So everyone there is equipped with a katana, and technologically speaking, a katana is a really well made sword by at that time, especially in Japan. Yeah, especially in Japan. And it would add a little uh, touch of intimidation 
because if it's known that, oh, you know, such and such officer has a Masamune, mm-hmm. has a Muramasa, uh, then that's going to add like a little bit more oomph to their status in terms of, oh, you don't want to mess with them because you don't know yeah. what will happen. They were kind of the, the, the bladesmiths, the weapon makers, not, not just Muramasa, not just Masamune, but in general, like if you had a really well-renowned, uh, maybe not as well-renowned as Masamune Muramasa, right? But a uh, well-renowned swordsmith and you had a, a, like they were known for making exceptional weapons. Absolutely. Like, oh yeah, you don't, you want to mess with Tokugawa Ieyasu. He's got a Muramasa uh, or, or what have you. I think that's really interesting because it's like, uh, I don't know. We don't really have an equivalent. I, Winchester, I think, is probably the closest we can get. Uh, for weapons, yes, yes, but not in general. Yeah. So you can apply this for a lot of things. People compare cars that way. Sure. People compare sports figures. Like, Michael Jordan's the best. Well, you know, uh, there's people before him, um, uh, the doctor who made, uh, who, uh, no, not the doctor. I'm trying to think of, Wilt Chamberlain, who say, scored Wilt over still. points. Wilt still. Well, Chamberlain, who scored 100 points uh, single-handedly in the game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Michael Jordan's the one people will remember. Sure. And um, the, this, or like how it goes with technology, goes with comparisons of like Marvel and DC. We just do that. Sure. It's the thing. Now, are they better or worse? Kind of. Time will tell on, on those ones. In Masa... Yeah, it comes down to it, it's a craft mm-hmm. you're talking about, and you're thinking of the most well-known craftsman mm-hmm. because it's already well-known due to their quality and their skill and talent. I think that's a really good point. You know, we don't really uh, so like with cars, right? If it's a Ford, it's just a Ford. That's the company, but it's not like we know, you know, oh, Jerry at the Ford lot assembled this car, and Jerry's really well known for making great Fords or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that that's kind of an interesting. Uh, separation but i think to your credit leo uh bringing up Mar- marvel specifically right we knew of stan lee we knew of jack kirby and they were kind of known for making great books you know michael bendis is, is a name that you hear thrown around a lot in comic books yeah. um so you do kind of we still have that to a point it's just uh it, it's interesting how it's selective right Right, like Michael J. Sardansky is known for having some of the best, uh, some of the better stories in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then you can't, uh, but Stan Lee is always known for making all these characters. Mm-hmm. But you compare them writing for writing, Stan Lee is kind of just corny, but that's his style. And yeah. it's it's fun. Um, but that's sort of the thing with it. Alan Moore gets a lot of credit too, but mm-hmm. they're stylistic and not everyone's going to want that style. So back to Masamune and Muramasa, sure. if I was a shogunate, I would go with Muramasa because I will always get a good quality katana and pretty timely fashion for it. Still well, not has- Masamune, but you know. <laughs> I think it kind of depends on when you existed as well, right? So like mm-hmm. Tokugawa Ieyasu came to power in 1500. Um, so 200, 300 years after Masamune is dead. And while you can upkeep those things and you can keep them nice and, and you know, there is a reverence for uh, weaponry by those who study the, the arts martial. But I feel like, you know, you may not always want a 200-year-old sword. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you, you want to have it, you want to claim it, you want to keep it nice. But like, I don't know that I would... So if you handed me today a 200-year-old gun and like, hey, do you want this one or do you want a modern one? I'd, I'd probably take, like, I want the old one, but not to use, right? I, no. I want the old one to keep to keep uh, preserved, to, to enjoy it historically. But if you were like, hey, you have to go fight somebody, which one of these do you want? I, I'd probably take the more modern one, personally. 
Uh, and so I think it's interesting. Like, I think you're absolutely right. Tokugawa Ieyasu probably preferred the Muramasa blade. Uh, maybe not because of its legend or its story, but more so because it's, it's 200 years newer, right? Like mm-hmm. here's, here's a guy, you know, who's making good quality things. Uh, you've seen his work, you know, his work, and it's not already old and been used. Like, yeah, if your ancestors passed you down a blade, obviously there's something to that. But uh, if you had to go, like, go pick one up from the store, right, you're, you're probably going to go with the Muramasa at that time. I do find it a little bit interesting as well that historically speaking, now that I'm, I'm remembering, uh, Tokuga- the Tokugawa Shogunate had some tragedy with Muramasa blades. There, There's some... Oh, yeah! There's some things that like went down with that and yet still they were like nah like that was pretty messed up but this guy does good work you know if you had a masamuna you'd be protected from monsters and stuff (laughs) well and it's kind of fascinating that you bring that up though about the tokugawa though um as well as the muramasa and the masamune blade uh you would actually would find though that it's um and it's you know we talk about how the tokugawa would have preferred the muramasa blade but there was i believe a point in time though uh, where the, uh, the the symbol of the Tokugawa shogunate was the, if I remember correctly, it was the Hanjo Masamune, uh, which was the sword that was used by Hanjo, uh, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher his last name, but Hanjo uh, Shigenaga, uh, which, you know, he led his troops into the battle of Kawa, uh, Kawa Nakajima in 1561, mm-hmm. which was during that Tokugawa era. Um, yeah, and, you know, so at that point in time, you know, uh, I believe that was uh, Hanjo Shigen, uh, yeah, Shihango, Hanjo Shigen uh, Naga. I apologize, I'm butchering the name here. But, you know, if you look at the legend of that one, though, that's a pretty interesting story itself, though, too. He used a Mazumune blade. Uh, he ended up fighting another general of similar rank, mm-hmm. obviously, because it's another general, uh, whose sword cleaved Shigenaga's helmet in half. However, it didn't kill the general. Shigenaga instead got the, uh, got the killing blow and took the sword. Um, and I think that sword had stayed within the Tokugawa family up until I think 1939. Uh, no, it stayed with them longer than that. that. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. The Hanjo Masamune is the Masamune. That's the big one. Um, because the Hanjo Masamune, uh, as Steve was saying, is that that's General Hanjo uh, Shikanaga's sword that he got from Masamune. He used in the duel. He won. And that sword gets transferred to the Shogunate. When the Shogunate um passes uh goes away and get uh goes away and gets retaken back from the emperor i think that happens in 1718 during the restoration period mm-hmm. the, yeah the ma- major restoration yeah somewhere the around that time yeah the sword gets transferred from the uh the the shogunate and then moves on to the emperor the emperor keeps the sword until uh 19 until uh 1945 when the after uh, until 1945, when they turned the sword over to the United States during the, when the United States took over, uh, uh, finished World War II, one of the rules was that they had to remove all their weapons. One of the uh, things is that they mm-hmm. included swords on there. It's mostly symbolic. There's not like no one has. The only time you will use a sword is so rare it's not even funny. Especially once you get into modern combat, it unless you are that. There's an old saying, which is, if you are too uh, close enough to that a that a, a sword is better or a knife is better mm-hmm. for you, you are too close. Um. So, but they took the sword. Now, what happens to the sword after that? And this is the great crazy thing. Someone signs off on the sword. They were going to take the swords and melt them into a Buddhist into a, a blankets of Buddhist shrine. 
Um, but most of the swords were just going to get melted down. That's just how the the U.S. Army was going to deal with the, with the mm-hmm. sword problem. When they did that, though, this sword, the Hanjo Masamuni, was a was taken away uh, by a person that signed off as Sergeant Coldy Bymore, which most which historians have figured that's a fake name. Someone signed off for it, took the sword, and left, and. That's the last that you hear from the uh, from the about the Hanjo Masamuni. So there's probably a national treasure running around somewhere. Oh, absolutely, it's, it's here somewhere. Honestly, I have. So you hear about these ideas of like a barn find, right? Where somebody finds an old car in a barn and it's in great condition, and the per- oh my God. the person just doesn't want it anymore, so they get it for like a hundred bucks or whatever, and it's like a you know multi thousand dollar car. I have this dream, right? I'm gonna go to like Iowa. Or like some, it's got to be in the Midwest. That's where I'm feeling. That's yeah, the, I'm feeling the Midwest. You know, like somebody's got it in a storage bin or in an attic. It's in a trash bag in their attic, passed down from great grandfather, something or other, and they know nothing about it. Like, oh God, I hope it's found. I hope it's not being like abused and just or broken, destroyed, whatever. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I just have this dream. I want to see it found. I just want to see it around. <laughs> Oh, you know, I, be I do find it funny because, like, speaking about the the reverence of the Masamune swords and that sort of thing, like, you're absolutely right, Steve. You, you brought up that uh, Shikanaga used it. But what I find also kind of funny is that he sold the sword <laughs> after he used it. Like, he sold a Masamune that we, we now <laughs> think of as, like, priceless. He sold it to uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi's uh, nephew, I think. So, some someone in Hideyoshi's so. army. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just just can you imagine? Like, I mean, obviously, like he needed the money or whatever. But like, to us today, that's just like you. I'm sorry, you did what? What? But like, what? yeah. If you were there, like next to him, like, are you right in the head? Yeah. <laughs> like, I and you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe uh, you know, the amount he got for it was a really good deal. I don't. I don't know what the going price for a uh, Masamune was back then. Um. But I, I do find it funny that, like, he sells it, and then it's passed down to, like, a bunch of different people to where it eventually ends up with Tokugawa Ieyasu. Right. Like, <laughs> it, it, filter, it filtered up to the top. <laughs> it eventually falls back into the Tokugawa's well, yeah, hands, like, essentially. So just to give you a brief, like, really, really brief primer. So Hideyoshi Toyotomi is the second of the three great unifiers. Oda Nobunaga is the first one. Toyotomi... Uh, Hideyoshi is the second one, and then Tokugawa Ieyasu is eventually the one. There's this saying, and it's said a couple of different ways, but, uh, you know, uh, Oda Nobunaga prepared the cake, Hideyoshi Toyotomi baked the cake, and uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu ate the cake. Uh, That's kind of how the unifiers, so Oda started this whole thing. He was like, I'm going to conquer all of Japan, and then he's murdered by one of his associates. And Toyotomi Hideyoshi was one of his vassals, was like, screw that guy. I'm going to kill him and then I'm going to unify Japan. And that goes, okay. He, he does a pretty good job of it. And then eventually it falls to, to the Tokugawa Shogunate and they, they finish the job as it were. But I just, I find it funny that like this, this, this mystical blade, this Hanjo Masamune that is here potentially in the States somewhere, it's somewhere in the world. Maybe if it still exists was used by a guy, sold it. It ends up in the hand of a Shogun and then ends up in the hand of the Shogun. You know? Yeah. Not just any Shogun, the Shogun. There's yeah. been a lot in Japan's history, but I, I would say Tokugawa Ieyasu, for all of his faults and, and stuff, is kind of the most well-known. Oh, sure. yeah. 
But so, like, if you're wondering how reverence those were, uh, there is, like, several of these that are special. Now, there is one, it's not the Hanjo Masamune, but there is one in the United States. Uh, there's a Masamune sword in the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library and Museum. It was gifted to, I think, Woodrow Wilson. And it... Are you speaking about the Shimatsu? It doesn't have a formal name for that one, though. It's just a, um, I think it's, uh, it's not the Shimatsu. It might be, actually. Um, but it is in the uh, gift and placed into a museum. And it's just been sitting there this entire time for it. So the reason why that's kind of important is there is ways, there's some that just keep uh, showing up in history. But there's so few and far between, it's one of the, it's one of the most replicated and for, and forgery swords that you can do. Yeah. Because if, if it's a, if it's a sword that if it's a sword that I think you're talking about, I do believe that is the Shimatsu because I think that was like one of the last known recorded swords that's in history. Um, and if I recall, you are right; it did show up in Truman's hands uh, uh, after Japan had surrendered, um, and then it ended up in the Truman Library up until. I think it was 1978 where it had been rumored it got stolen. And though that's a rumor, of course, obviously rumors are just like everything else in the world there, you know, either there's some fact or fiction to it. Um, but, you know, at this point in time though, too, if I remember correctly though, that sword itself is no longer in America. That's actually back in uh, the Kyoto national museum, but that's the one that did end up in Japan and then eventually ended up back in, or I'm sorry, ended up in America, then eventually ended up back in Japan um, but it was one of the last one where the scholars had confirmed the existence of a Mazumune original, uh, which had happened in 2014, uh, which was the sword that had gone missing for almost 150 years for that particular sword, not the Hanja Matsumune, which is just poofed out of existence. Um, so on, on that note with Dane's dream, can you imagine if it just turns up somewhere and is just handed back to the imperial family in japan like uh i would love that you, you uh that. you dropped this <coughs> right <laughs> and you know you know much like with winning the lottery it's gonna be some like english school teacher <laughs> whose great-grandfather fought in the war she's really mild-mannered like just oh. a super nice wholesome lady like, <laughs> we've been using this as a letter well, opener know, for years <laughs> Oh yeah, you know we found the uh, that their katana in our attic, and uh, we just thought, oh, you know, turn it into the history people. They know what to do with it, don't you know? We used to use it for like just some parameters, don't you know? It'll be like we were that. chopping wood with it, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna cry. I'm just gonna or, or, or even better, openly. it ends up on like Antiques Roadshow or something. Oh god, everybody's or like, or hold pawn on, stars. hold on, or Pawn Stars. Oh, oh man, don't, no, don't. No. Don't, it's Steve, gonna be a don't. Uh, look, look, you got to understand, all right? I understand this is a Masamune. I'm going to call my guy in here. He's going to take a look at it. Look, I understand that we've authenticated this to be an authentic Masamune, but you got to re- you got to understand. I got to make him you know, I got to resell this thing. Uh, best I could do is 350. That's $3.50, mind you, not 350. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Best I could do. You know what? You know what? I could do five. I could do five. I can do five. I can do. And then Turn around and sell it back to the government for millions. Right. Oh. Uh, personally, if I had that sword, though, I would not. I would just freely. I, all I'd want is a trip to Japan with some of my friendos and say, yeah, buddy. And a photo of me with a thumb sticking up going, yeah, buddy. 
Like, do I get to see I, the three I treasures of the all... Imperial family at the same time? Come on. Come on. You... <laughs> I want I want you all to know I don't wish ill on the people on Pawn Stars, but if they find the Hondra Masamune, I may have to declare war. I, I don't know if there's any way around it. Like, I'm going on crusade to get that fucking sword. I'll sadly probably join you. I, it's like one of those things, you know? Like, it's one of my bugaboos. I just got I mean, I'm always it. up for a good fight. Lock and load, let's go. Yeah, I'm always up for a good, uh, good fight, but I'll just be honest with you. I think I'm just going to bring my camera along and record this shit show going down. Yeah, fair. That's fair. <laughs> Watch me fight Rick in the parking lot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Come on. You got it. Get in the van. <laughs> He's probably like way stronger than I am. Look at the guy. It looks like freaking lifts, man. Yeah. You just watch me get my shit yeah. done. You know, kind of, I know one of y'all mentioned the uh, the three great treasures, and I know that this is kind of an aside from Masamune, and I know I keep doing yeah, this, that's but fine. I'm going to do this anyway, because this is my time. I'm holding the conch. <laughs> it's my turn to talk. Whoa, whoa. As long as you don't um, take us out, man. All hell the conch. Yeah, yeah. As long as you don't, as long as none of you are secretly holding the Hanjo Masamune, we're good. <laughs> Um, but no, I do find it interesting that like we we don't know the validity of the three sacred treasures of Japan. There there's there's some weirdness around specifically the sword. Uh when the uh the capital fell, they put the I think the then emperor on a boat with the sword. Maybe it was a monk. I I, I my memory is a little bit failing me, but uh they put the the national treasure sword on a boat and the boat sank. And then miraculously, a couple of weeks later, it washed up on shore. Now, one of two things happened there, right? One, they got real lucky and that sword washed up on yeah. shore. Or two, that national treasure sword, not the Hanjo Masamune, but the, the, you know, the national treasure sword of Japan, was lost forever. And they were like, no, it wasn't. It's right here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Stop asking questions. And I find that really interesting because they don't let anyone see it. And I understand why, because it's a, you know, priceless artifact if it is real but if it's not real like i want to like if i have a if i if i have a time machine that lets me go invisible i just want to know is the sword in that box real or is there nothing in and that just box? watch the swap or and just go fake sword? Oh. <laughs> okay. yeah yeah like i i can't be trusted with a time machine that lets me go back to time and like walk around because i will steal things <laughs> i will steal so many things and i, I, I i'm not even apologetic about it i'm just going to take like not even like important things. I'm not going to steal like the Declaration of Independence, but I'm going to grab like somebody's favorite sandals, and like it's going <laughs> to change be that history. Guy. I, I can't be trusted. Could, I am. I'm absolutely you that could be guy. that villain that's like showing your hall full of priceless artifacts and be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that they're showing that on TV. Fake, real ones right here. Yeah, yeah. That, the Hanjo Masamune that they found. No, I have the real one. Believe it or not, Pawn Stars Attic. I don't know, <laughs> craziest thing. Uh, um, but no, I do. I like that's one of the greatest things of history of Japanese history specifically is I want to know what's in that box. And if there's a sword in that box, cause I don't know if there is, uh, to be honest, like they don't open it anymore. The only people who see it, I think is the emperor, uh, whenever they crown a new one, which they just did recently. But, um, I want to know what's in that box. And if there's a sword in that box, I want to know, is that sword real? And I'll never know. You'll never I'll never know. know. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's one of those like historical weirdness things that I'm like, I don't know, man. Right. Could be yeah, anything. Like, could be, um, there could be yeah. anything. It could even be a it's boat. Not... <laughs> it could be a boat. Right. You know how much we've wanted one of those. Had to get it in there. Sorry. As, as a quick aside, I just, I, I find swords and, and that sort of thing fascinating. Oh, it's amazing. But it's not like the crown jewels where we know they exist because they're on display. They just never take them out 
unless but like um even so like are the crown jewels real no. do we know that it's an awfully elaborate yeah. work for when these uh jewels, yeah. crown jewels were made right just like with the sword they're never gonna let anybody that's like an expert examine it because mm-hmm. they'd be able to uh-huh. tell <laughs> <laughs> like like how funny would it be you know you know some real loop on shit like stole the crown jewels you know 400 600 1200 years ago uh and the royal family's like fuck okay well uh these are the crown jewels like but Milady, they they were stolen. No, no, these are the crown jewels. I insist. Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. She, the queen, has everyone murdered. You know, <laughs> You've seen too much. Like... <laughs> There's lipstick ships. Yeah, you gotta go. Yeah, like I mean, I I want to believe that they're real, but like with how crazy the art theft world is and and that sort of thing, like it would not at all surprise me if much like that missing potentially quote unquote missing uh Japanese national treasure sword that washed up on the shore uh it would not at all surprise me if the real crown jewels had been stolen by some illustrious thief I mean it, eons yeah. ago and you know they they just replaced it with a ah it's good enough <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know th- this is this is really far afield and then I'll stop talking and let somebody else take the floor I'll I'll, I'll give the conch over but Keep um, the conch. I want the sword and what oh that's fair that's fair <laughs> I do find it fascinating because at what point does it matter, right? Like if that sword in that box is a fake or if there's no sword in the box, like is the belief in it stronger or, or more worth it than, you know, the actual item existing, right? So if the crown jewels, as an example, are fake, does it matter? Because we all kind of agreed that those are the crown jewels. So it, depending on your situation, no. Um, this is, uh, it's a thing that happens every so often in history. Um, for example, like, in order to have the crown jewels, you have to be part of the royal family, for example, right? There's a period where the royal family is not in charge in English history. And when that happened, things happened so badly, they're like, all right, uh, you're back in charge now. We'll just put you back. Don't I need a, sure, put this on, this on, ceremony done, we're moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, or for that. But there's also like the island of Yap has a uh, currency this was way back when but they had a currency system and that currency system was with uh limestone tap uh chunks you had a chunk of limestone they just sort of uh but limestone is not a natural resource in the island of yap so they have to go over to over to the mainland mine out this limestone this is your dollar bill and they're like that ah, this is the giant dollar this is the biggest limestone we got you know it's your your classic thousand dollar bill put it on the boat, they sail the boat back, and the boat sinks because, well, it's a giant rock of limestone, then they don't have a, bit, a good way of carrying it. The limestone rock hits sure. the bottom of the, of the uh, lake. No, And they come back, and they just tell everybody, yeah, there's a, we dropped it over there. Um, No one can go in there because this is way before diving equipment. They're like, it's good. We'll count as this money. <laughs> it's just solid. And it's been traded back and forth constantly for for over a century they just assume eh, it's good your imaginary tender is good here thank you i know all money is kind of fake when you get right down to oh, it, right? good. All... Monopoly money. <laughs> yeah i mean that's pretty much all money right sure. we, we just we just believe in it we... yeah we... <laughs> it's all fake right. as long as everybody we, accepts... we believe that it works yeah. and so it does because yeah, we all accept that XYZ item has value attached to it, and uh-huh. therefore that associated value is good to exchange for goods and services. 
Absolutely. So that box could have a boat in it. It could actually have another Masamune sword. I think it would be appropriate yeah. to have another sword in there, or not. <laughs> but, the, I mean, like I, I would, I, I would hazard a guess, right? That it probably has a blade in yeah. it. Yeah. But you know, whether it's the the fabled blade that uh, you know Japan prizes as their uh, one of their three sacred treasures, I don't know. Because there is that story, and who knows? Maybe that story's made up too, right? Maybe some some person was like, "Hey, man, can you imagine if we lost the sacred treasure and it got washed up on the shore, and we found the box later? Like that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Who knows? You know, there's so much uh, doubt. Yeah. But I, I just I want to know what's in the box. See, that's the thing. We put this reverence know. on it. the The name uh, the Andre Bosco yeah. is uh, such a big reverence to it that, and I'm showing you guys a picture of this right now. That's the name. Uh, they take. The title of Masamune as a title of the best thing on there. In fact, there's a cow back uh, that, <laughs> uh, that that that's out there that apparently is the best beef ever. And this uh, Akasashi, uh, this cow is actually called Mister Hanjo Masamune. I love that cow, and right, I'm already on board with this. <laughs> like, I would kill, I would murder for that that beast. Yeah, uh, it, and I'm sure the description of this guy. He has a great combination of flawless design, muscularity, and impeccable breeding. Tis be the finest cow. That is, your Hanjo Masamude cow. <laughs> you know, I hear he's the last living male descendant from the legendary cow, Kaede Maru. Oh, God. Kaede Maru created a genetic giant, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm sure that this isn't the case, but I would find it very bemusing if the Hanjo Masamune is found. It is, you know, shown to be authentic. And, like, what happens if that turns out to be, like, his worst sword? You know what I mean? Like, comparatively, right? We've got the Fudo Masamune. We've got the Musashi Masamune. The Hocho Masamune. Kotagiri Masamune. Uh, those still exist. And, obviously, those aren't all katanas or, or, or uh, tachis. But uh, a lot of them were cut, cut short during World War II to, you know, fit that aesthetic. But I, I think it'd be... I would be a little bit, like, beside myself, but also kind of amused if the Hanjo Masamune just turns out to be, like... Masamune's worst sword. Like it's still a Masamune. It's still great. It's still priceless. But it's like, like his worst one that he made. You know what I mean? His, it turns out the turns out the real the real masterpiece is like, oh, it's the Snaginata over here. Who knew it would be a spear? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like the Hondra, like Hondra Masamune is okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. He had it in the the, the dollar bucket for uh, you know samurai coming through. He's like, or just someone just sort of bugs him enough. Fine, I'll make the sword sleeps on it oh i forgot to uh that's good enough yeah yeah best work i put onto it because you can guarantee he made great work i cannot guarantee that this mm-hmm. is his greatest work <laughs> yeah yeah right like it's probably like compared to a, a normal forge a normal smith who was not as talented like Alejandro masamuni even if it is the worst sword that he ever made is still probably better than the best sword that other people have made but i just think it'd be funny if like Oh my god, this rare mythical blade that's gone missing is just this like kind of junky, you know, crappy sword. <laughs> uh, there's a saying that I, I have whenever I talk to uh to Kibai, our our fellow friend, and he's playing the support character for me in a, in a couple games. I go, Sir, your mm. support game, your C game is better than most people's A game on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's a trust. That's a that's a particular level that few um artisans can hit. That all of a sudden, eh, this is uh, everyone's just praising it as this great work of art, and he's like, eh, "It's fine, I guess." 
Yeah, this was kind of the sloppy part that, you know, just came off the side and it kind of let it fall into the trench, you know, but if you say so, sure, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, there is a <laughs> national competition, a uh, foraging competition that is still held today that the the title of the uh, of Masamune is given to the winner of that competition, but they have to forge it similarly to how Masamune is used. So no major manufacturing part, uh, parts. No industrial advantages, all traditional. Mm-hmm. And I think that's cool. And um, one of the things that they, because uh, it has like an acid etch, and for those who don't know swords, that usually means it's a black wavy line in the center of it. Um, that actually has to come from how it's forged and processed and and folded in order to make that etching. And so that's one of the ways that you can tell if it's a Masamune sword, because they have a very particular pattern for it. Which is also why it's replicated. <laughs> right, you're talking about the uh, Hamon, which yep. uh, the traditional method was uh, a liquid clay with uh, iron powder, like powdered iron flex in it, and that would be placed over the blade in a particular fashion, and it was a, a kind of a critical step for that as well, because it determined the end results of that blade, and then it would be quenched and that would be the time when, since the metals are cooling at different temperatures, it would end up fusing some of those that iron into the uh, into the side of the blade, and it would give it that particular look that you'd see. And that even has specific names for different shapes that would appear in in that entire wavy design. Um, if uh, I always find it fascinating because people will always talk about, yes, this sword was fl- folded thousands of times to to uh to its great purity and if you know enough about mold metallurgy back then no that's terrible you fold it over and over again because it's so weak that you need to keep folding it over and over and over again yeah you're trying to get the impurities right you're improving the strength of the uh ladder the lattice of the uh, the metal structure and yeah dealing with mm-hmm. moving the impurities around uh on on top of all that, um, once the uh, blade's uh, helmet was determined and the quenching was completed, th- thus all the tempering is done, uh, if you've got a not straight blade, it's junk. Uh, but if it turns out that you did forge a proper blade and got the shape that the swordsmith desired and everything, then it's handed off to a polisher. Not the smith. The smith isn't necessarily doing the polishing themselves, because polishing, at least particularly with smiths back then in, in Japan, that was a completely separate craftsmanship. That was done totally separate from the rest of what the work that oh, the yeah. smith was doing themselves, and had a completely different discipline to it. That would be that their their efforts were there to bring out the spirit of the blade, as it were. And then it would come back to the smith to show the results of their this work. This means uh, you did terrible work. Go back, shine it again till I see myself in there. <laughs> Probably wouldn't even show up until it was at that point if the craftsmen knew what they were doing. Because mm-hmm. some of them would have to shine it. And it's not shine as we know it. Some of them had to use oils and very particular things to make it work uh, work on that. And that's because it has to mix with the forging process. Oh, sure. And the process involved like a multiple series of stones with... A variety of coarseness to it and it come down to like almost using like the bare skin at certain points 
as a, as a polishing surface. <laughs> oh, um, luckily, so the the only thing is, like, luckily, it's not just me and Dane and us here at Gaming Theater that would possibly fight somebody to fight to get the Hanjo Masamori. Actually, at least fifty percent of us will fight someone to get back that sword and give it back to Japan. So we got your back on that one. Um, I'll just fight because I like the fight. True. <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> uh, we have the sword, Steve. You can you can just come. You know what? Let him get it out of his system. Let him, yeah, let him work it this one out. Let me get it out of my system. Once Uh-oh. it's out of my system, I'm good. <laughs> Until the next time. <laughs> but there's other people out there who also take up the cause and try to find family heirlooms of swords and such and return it or things for it. There, It's not just a thing that, that some people uh, do. Some people just want to return back items to their original source, their original, you know. Um, you said, yeah. you, uh, should. you should want that. <laughs> it belongs uh, in a right, museum. There, Andy. <laughs> there's a couple people out there, like uh, Dr. <laughs> Wal- uh, Walter Ames uh, Compton. He had a huge sword collection, but towards the end of his life, one of the things that he did was try to find what's called the Providence, the original records of what they're, uh, where this came from. And they tracked the Providence bound back to original source, and he just started giving some of the, his collection back to Japan in order to just give it back. He didn't need them anymore, or whatever. Um, but it's, I think that's kind of neat that there's other people out there because the one of the hardest things to track down is artworks, and it's easier to track down an artwork than it is to track down a sword. Um, but if you can track it down and you can find it, um, there's people out there who want to return it back. So that's great. If you're out there listening and you have the Hanjo Masamune sword, we don't need to know who you are. We just need you to return it. We don't, we, you know, just put it on the step with a little note and we're good. Okay. No one's going to be in trouble. No questions asked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, as long as it's back on where it belongs, you know, let's say by the end of the year, we're good. Sit down for dinner and that'll be that. <laughs> Now, if you just give me the the scabbard of it, just the hilt, and uh, left a note, yeah, yeah, then it's a ransom. Asked. You're chopping off it, the sword's ears, <laughs> right? Or finger Why? and whatnot. Why'd you no, do this? No, oh no, that's declaration of war at that point. All right. So with that, I think this is a good stopping point for ourselves before we go mad with plotting how to find the sword that we don't know where it is. Um. So, any kind of final thoughts for everybody? I would absolutely one? love to do another one as to how it relates to like video games and popular culture. I know we kind of went more historical based on this one, I, which I love. I agree. But I agree. Uh, I think it'd be cool to to like dive into our our mm-hmm. roots here. You know, because I I think I like many people found out about Masamune and Muramasa via popular media, so video games, books, comics, etc. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I do have a love for Japan and Japanese history, like I, I don't think that was my starting point. It was probably Ninja Turtles, if I'm being honest, but um, or Power Rangers, right? But I don't know if either of them had a Muramasa or a Masamune. But that would be cool to, to examine. So I would love to do this again, and and that's kind of my my final thoughts. Yeah, I think we could um do that, John. This was just more part of the history of it, um, because my first case of the Masamune is also video game ways. It was Chrono Trigger. Um, in fact, that's what started this whole episode in the first place. I'm like, hey, maybe other people are like me and don't know exactly what the Masamune is. But yeah, we'll examine that one into... We'll just do a whole episode on swords. On famous swords in video games and just go nuts on that. I'm okay with that. I'm here for it. <laughs> All right. But yeah, 
thanks for everybody for showing up and you know it's and this is gaming theater podcast logging out enjoy the cxp boost thanks for listening take care why oh real quick our next episode should be coming out april 1st see you then Gaming Theater Podcast is hosted, created, produced, and edited by Leo Garcia, the Geek Scorpio. Our music is A Drinking Game, stock media provided by Stormwave Audio slash Pond5. Our cover art is by Kate O'Glassing. If you want to send us some money to help with these episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash gamingtheaterpresents. Want to send support that doesn't hit your wallet? Please leave a review with wherever you hear your podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. It really helps out. Thank you for listening. <laughs>